Hello and welcome to this episode of Thrill of the Hill. My name is Alec Perry and this is the Farm Advisory Service series where we discuss the hot topics impacting the farmed upland environment. In today's episode of Thrill of the Hill, I'm joined by Highland Habitat's Michael Skelly and we discuss Scotland's approach to deer management in the context of achieving woodland regeneration. We also discuss how to identify the signs of high browsing pressure and the need to promote a thriving upland environment for people and nature. Hello, Michael, how are you doing? Very well, Alex, thank you. Good, good. Michael, this is your first time on Thrill of the Hill. Are you excited to be here? I certainly am. I've got got a few butterflies, <laughs> yes. No, I'm sure we'll get on absolutely fine. Don't worry about it at all. Michael, we've been talking back and forth for a little while now about getting you on the podcast. Obviously, deer management in the uplands is a really topical issue. We also wanted to touch on the issues of woodland regeneration with you. And uh, by all accounts, you're the man for the for the job. Can the listeners just get a bit of an introduction as to who you are, um, who you work for, and the kind of work that you've been involved with in the past? Yes, indeed. I'm a, a native of Ulster originally, so I'm a, an Irishman. I moved over here the day after leaving school at the age of 16, which was in 1982, I think. And uh, I was offered a job uh, as a shepherd, uh, well, a shepherd's boy, and it eventually ended up being a, a rabbit trapper and eventually got into gamekeeping. Initially, I was uh, a pheasant keeper and partridge keeper. That was grey partridges back in the day, and there were quite a lot of grey partridges. And uh, the bulk of the bag was wild birds, supplemented with some rearing. And then eventually I got into grouse management, and I worked on a number of grouse moors throughout my career. Enjoyed that enormously. And latterly, uh, I was actually assisting the estate with farming, uh, on the hill as well. So farming specifically for grouse and specifically for uh, with tick management uh, in mind. Ticks being a kind of a modern phenomena on the hill and really been quite devastating to not only grouse but all, all ground nesting birds, you know. Latterly, uh, in, in the latter part of my career there, I've been a deer culling contractor and up until last year, I was working on the National Forest Estate as a wildlife ranger manager. So, uh, yeah, pretty full on all of my life. I'm now 58 year old and uh, slowing down a little bit. <laughs> and Michael, can you just tell the listeners a little bit about Highland Habitats? Highland Habitats is, is my own uh, workplace. I, when I, I, I ceased to be a gamekeeper in 2012, uh, I was looking around for ideas for employment. And uh, I was very keen that the the image that I put forward was what I perceived to be a modern image of uh, land management and the, the specific kind of land management that I might be able to deliver. And I thought long and hard about the name and most of the work that I was doing in the latter stages of my career was about improving habitats. And as I'm based in the Highlands, uh, Highland Habitats seemed a logical name to trade under. 
So I created that in 2012 and I've been trading under that name since. And I also looked long and hard for an image for my uh, front page of my website, which is a very simple, no frills website. But I, I think the image on the front cover conveys some of my thoughts in terms of what I was thinking when I, I come up with the idea of Highland Habitat. So I'm specifically interested in natural region of native woodland. That's that's my my thing uh, at this point in my career. I'm, I'm particularly interested in that. And Michael, this is Thrill of the Hill. We are particularly in, uh, interested in issues that impact the farmed upland environment. Can you just advocate a little bit for the farmed upland environment, the kind of rural economy and these vulnerable areas that, that you're so interested in? Yeah, uh, I, I feel that the, the rural community has been slightly embattled for quite a period of time uh, and going back to the early parts of my career there were just many more people and uh, uh, employed in the countryside and for a variety of reasons uh, there are less people employed in the countryside now and machinery and technology is sort of taking the place of that and I, I suppose each generation uh, laments the passing of previous ways of working you know I, I liked when we worked in the past there were clippings dippings gatherings for instance we all got together it wasn't necessarily a pay involved in the day we seemed to get by in fresh air then but there would be a meal provided for the team and it was a great social occasion and uh, I, I, I miss that and I enjoyed that and the characters, the people that you met at these clippings, dippings, shooting days, etc., they were they were tremendous characters. They really were. So I I miss that. We're now moving into this sort of modern era, and I think that my line of work, which originally being a gamekeeper, I think we do have a a strong future. I really do. I think we've good work to do going forward, particularly with native woodland restoration and the protection of that and the skill sets that people like the modern gamekeepers bring to uh, that sort of set of issues that need to be managed. So I I am hopeful for the future uh, in terms of where we're going, uh, but things are constantly developing and yeah, there just seems to be less people involved uh, going forward. Michael, it's been a number of years now since we've covered deer management on the podcast. Um, last time we did, we had the Venison Advisory Service on. I was hoping that you could just get us kicked off with a kind of summary of where we are with deer management in Scotland. What's the population looking like? What kind of activities need undertaken? Yeah, it's, it's very current uh, in terms of the debate. Uh, and what's going on? The, I think there's a, a consensus that there there are too many deer in some areas, and uh, the I, as a reference for today, I, I sort of look back at uh, what our notes were saying from ADMG. 
when we had the their AGM in March in Inverness. And it sort of gives you a good summary uh, at a glance of uh, matters that are current and pressing. Uh, there's been a forestry con consultation, uh, Forestry Scotland consultation document going out, which impacts uh, deer management significantly. There's been a, a statement on biodiversity strategy from the deer management groups across the Highlands, where they note that significant efforts have been made and progress to reduce upland deer populations. However, it finishes with uh, more work required if all the habitats are to, to regen regenerate. And what it's saying really in diplomatic language there is that more deer need, need to be culled depending on your business, uh, your rural business, that's a, a bit of a double-edged sword, to be honest. Some people are uh, fearmently opposed to uh, more culling and others are desperately needing more culling. And I think the conflicts arise when you have neighbours with differing uh, management strategies um, and... Yeah, it's a, it's a very difficult hot potato at the moment, so it is. Uh, going on with what ADMG highlighted earlier in the year, uh, there's a land reform consultation, which is available online, which also impacts deer management. And a voluntary land uh, rights and responsibilities statement, which again impacts deer management. In the Scottish Venison Statement of Intent, uh, and they're trying to get the point of carbon net zero across the Scottish venison industry going forward. Probably the most significant thing uh, mentioned in the ADMG uh, summary is the 92 accepted recommendations by the Deer Working Group. So I'm not going to go through 92 accepted recommendations just now, but they're there online. And that obviously has a direct impact on deer management day to day. Uh, there's also been publications from Nature Scott on uh, minimum bullet weights and image intensifiers. Both of those documents are available online. And again, have an impact on day-to-day -day deer management, what you can do, what you can't do. Uh, but they are, uh, they've, those two uh, statements there are directly as a result of the uh, parts of the 92 accepted recommendations. Uh, and then you've got the, the deer management health checks, uh, which are ongoing, uh, and to what extent, Michael, would you say that you agree with the recommendations of these reports? I mean, in terms of the experience that you have working um, in Scotland, are the recommendations, are the findings things that you recognise on the ground? Yes, uh, but with a caveat. It really depends on what your, your own mission statement is on the piece of ground that you're managing. 
if you're managing, for instance, a Red Deer Sporting Resource, well, your your management aims are going to be very, very different to someone that's managing uh, a native woodland restoration uh, in, in the extreme form uh, a regeneration program as opposed to a planting program. So the number of deer uh, per square kilometre in both of those scenarios that I've just mentioned are very different and require very different day-to-day management. Uh, on the one hand, you're managing a red deer resource, perhaps for paying clients or a venison business or a tourism business that's attached to the estate. And that will require uh, a number of deer per square kilometre that's conducive to making that business successful. At the other end of the scale, if you're talking about regenerating native woodland without any supplementary planting, you're talking about very, very low numbers of deer to achieve that end. So there, I think the, the debate arises because you've got almost extremes uh, in terms of land management outcomes and day-to-day practicalities uh, and delivering successful outcomes. You mentioned their deer grazing densities. Um, can you put it in perspective for the listeners? I mean, what what is a high deer stocking density and, and what's a relatively low one? That's uh, a very difficult question to answer. The, I think given that my particular uh, work at the moment is going down the, the route of native woodland, or indeed mixed commercial uh, conifer plantations, I would use a very simple tool. If you can walk into uh, a native woodland or commercial uh, planting uh, in its early stages, and you notice a sort of umbrella effect where everything below, and I'll use road ear as an example, below three foot six is cropped as though you were looking at someone had been in there with a hedge trimmer and it's very uniform and there is no understory to that woodland. Despite your observations on a day-to-day basis, that browsing is telling you something about the actual numbers of deer and the numbers of deer browsing to produce a situation like that may not necessarily be very high numbers of deer. The browse might be of poor quality and the deer are just browsing hard so that you've got a limited number of deer browsing hard. However, you're not getting any regeneration in a situation like that. And if you had individual coops within that, block of uh, forest which were let's say commercial conifers with something like uh, Douglas uh, growing Douglas fir your browsing levels on the conifers at certain times a year will be such that it will hold back that crop uh, in some cases for a very long time and that has a direct financial impact on the 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 owner of the holding 
so it, it's not always easy to you know look at a piece of ground and say, yep, clearly too many deer there. It's a it's quite a difficult thing to assess, really. And what kind of environmental damage you've you've just talked about browsing there? But what kind of environmental damage would you expect to see if deer populations were too high? You would not be if you've got a lot of uh, deer browsing. You you may not get any uh, natural regeneration of native woodland, for instance, which is very susceptible. It's very palatable when it's young, and uh, so if you you can imagine a theoretical woodland on a on a hillside somewhere in Scotland, and you've got native birch and perhaps native uh, oak. And a lot of it's a hundred, maybe hundred and fifty year old, and there is no succession of trees coming on. What you're looking at there is a a, a cohort of trees with nothing coming on in below. So, with the best will in the world, those trees will not grow forever and will not live forever. And when they perish, you don't have the next generation of trees coming on. That's that's actually what a lot of the commentators are saying in a slightly different language to what I'm using just now. It's that succession of trees that's being interrupted by numbers of deer. And we're talking predominantly about deer in terms of grazing and browsing pressure on this regenerating woodland. Can you just explain for the listeners, what does the average life cycle of your your standard deer look like? And what's the particularly important points in the calendar that we should be considering if we're looking at management options? Okay. Uh, for the purposes of this discussion, we'll chat briefly about red deer, which is the, the dominant species in the highlands and roe deer. There are other species. Sika are very significant in parts of uh, Argyle and up the, the Great Glen and, in fact, up into Sutherland. But for the purposes of this, this discussion, we'll concentrate on red deer and roe deer. A very old red deer would be 20, 20 years old. That's in a, a park-type environment. Uh, a, a red deer living beyond, pardon me, 14 or 15 year old in the highlands would be exceptional, really. They tend to die a bit uh, before then. And in any case, the, uh, a competent manager would be aiming to wheedle those animals out long before they got to that age. And they basically passed their, their most productive uh, with a roe deer, seven-year-old would be regarded as quite an old roe deer. And uh, again, a competent manager would be aiming to remove those animals before they got as old as that. And uh, basically keep the population on its toes young and vigorous and productive uh, so that uh, you're getting best return, if you like, uh, on your efforts. Uh, I don't know if that answers your question, Alex. 
And uh, in, from a legislative point of view then, um, what do people need to understand about what they can and cannot do in terms of, of stalking and, and what kind of timescales and specific periods should be, they be aware of? That's a, a difficult question to, to summarise, Alex. The, I think the, the simplest thing is to uh, speak to someone at a local level who is knowledgeable, qualified, uh, to to answer these questions, F- uh, for instance, with seasons, there is a huge variation uh, to the seasons that can be applied uh, with uh, red deer, roe deer, male or females, depending on the, the circumstances. Um, it's not easy to it would it's not easy to get that across in a in a podcast today. It would be simpler in a document. Uh, with someone able to read it and uh, have it as a reference. But I think if anyone were in doubt as to, for instance, the seasons that might apply with any species of deer, I would direct them to their local Nature Scott uh, officer. Just contact them online. And they're a a good bunch of folk, them, and they're, uh, yeah, they're very approachable, and they'll give you sound advice on, for instance, seasons, when you can't shoot, when you can't shoot, and what authorizations you might require uh, to achieve your management aims. And in terms of woodland regeneration, obviously, Scottish government have an interest in achieving woodland regeneration because it's presumably part of their overall climate strategy uh, as far as um, Scottish climate policy is concerned. How confident are you that woodland regeneration is going to achieve that? I mean, is there enough woodland to be regenerated that you think it could have a significant impact on how we manage climate change in Scotland? I'm not sure about that one, Alex. I'm, I'm not sufficiently knowledgeable on how the remnants of native woodland that we have in Scotland, I'm not sure just how much they can contribute to this net zero benefit. What I I do know is that if we have more young, vigorous, fit, able, qualified operators in the field, these things become... uh, easier to achieve uh, I, I, th- I look around at meetings I go to and, and I have made comment on this that I don't know if there's enough youngsters coming on and being brought on and encouraged into this sector and uh, any meeting I go to is a cohort of people in their 50s to 70s and a handful if you're lucky of youngsters so if we're going to achieve these targets uh Traineeships might be a good thing and encouraging more apprentices, trainees and uh, terms and conditions of employment, you know, so that you can actually deliver a workforce into the field and achieve your, your, your aims, you know, just making a statement saying we want to achieve X carbon result. You need people on the ground. And uh, 
with regards to that then could you just talk about the the heritage aspects of getting people to work in the highlands and islands of scotland and why that's important yeah it well it is important it's I, as I said earlier on, I, I moved to Scotland in the early 80s and uh, my father was an Irishman, my mother was a Scot. I love Scotland. I would have, I owe everything that I have to Scotland. I've married a Scots girl, my, got a boy and a girl. I love everything about that there is about Scotland. I love the whiskey, I love the tweed, I love the landscape. And I, yeah, I like to think that there's lots of people like me coming on that love and cherish the, the heritage and history of Scotland. So that these things can be preserved, if you like, and promoted going forward. Uh, it's... It's a wonderful country. It's a wonderful countryside. Who wouldn't want to work in it and assist it to uh, to, to really uh, thrive? You know, going forward. And and uh, as I said earlier, I my particular interest is in native woodland. Now that I'm getting a bit older and what have you and I love going into genuine native woodland and seeing if you go into some very old woodland things that have not changed very much in hundreds of years sometimes and it is it's like going into a rainforest in Central America or South America it's it's as precious as that and uh, I hope going forward that there's enough youngsters that look at that, see that, and feel the same way that I do about it and uh, can make a career out of it. Uh, if they can't make a career out of it, we're all in trouble. Scotland's landscape has been engineered, if you like, over the last couple of hundred years. Um, and there will have been efforts to, to clear fell and to remove forestry in Scotland um, where uh, where that's been possible. Presumably, you welcome the idea of more trees, more native regen in Scotland and that uh, we should be aiming to, to increase our, our woodland cover. Yes, I do. But again, with a caveat, uh, I and it's just a personal view, I... Uh, I've farmed on a very small scale, in a croft-like scale or a garden-type environment uh, all my life. I was taught to garden by my grandparents in, in Ireland and grow food for the table. And I have reservations where I see perfectly good arable ground uh, or mixed uh, farming ground being turned over to trees particularly given recent events with food security. And I would urge people to consider food security and local employment, because once these trees go in, that that could well be that ground for the next 100 or 150, 200 years. Uh, it's not a decision to be taken lightly. So I would emphasize, yes, I do like trees. Yes, I do like native trees trees in the right place uh, for the right reasons and not just for the sake of uh, a quick pound 
no, I think that's uh, that's a valid point. Michael, in terms of your top tips, if you like, if you're listening to this podcast and you're interested in encouraging woodland regeneration on your upland farm, what what would you say is the top things to be looking out for in terms of deer management? Uh, speak to your local woodland officer, obviously initially uh, with Scottish, for- Scottish Forestry, and try and plan what you're doing uh, in some detail from day one and understand what it is you're doing and the kind of issues that you're that will pop up and arise. Um, deer management, I think, for a long time hasn't had sufficient coverage, really, and what it means. And in simple language, I'll try and sort of shorten this as best I can, but if you can imagine a well-planned uh, forest situation and a not so well planned forest situation. The well planned situation will mitigate deer damage by having measures in place from before the trees go actually into the ground. And those forests inevitably establish quickly, and uh, the owner of that will almost certainly get a decent return on their investment. If it's not well planned and the deer management isn't well thought through, uh, people will struggle to grow trees. I think there was a perception for a long time that you stick a tree in the ground and you you walk away and it grows. That's not actually the case. Trees are getting more and more difficult, just like other crops, to establish. And uh, I would urge good planning from the outset. So speak to your your local Scottish forestry officer. Again, I've had good working relations with those guys over the years, do a good job, know what they're talking about, and try and have some grasp of deer management and what that involves and have someone on call, literally, to deliver uh, the task that you require. Presumably, Michael... There's a win-win situation here. If we can get enough woodland regeneration that we can get the woodland cover in place, we can grow the vegetation at ground level. Presumably that sustains deer populations in Scotland as well. There there is a relationship there where it could be mutually beneficial. Yes, uh, there's... In in an ideal situation, you will establish your trees well and you'll have... uh, 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 how could I describe it a, a, a population of deer there which is managed but that in itself is a resource going forward uh, so that, you know that it might simply mean meat on the table in the farmhouse uh, butchered and, and taken care of literally on the farm farmhouse table or it might depending on the scale of the operation spawn a small new business for someone where they're uh, butchering to order packaging and marketing under their own name so there there are op- opportunities there going forward uh, and obviously with the wildlife uh, will benefit too from the establishment of certain kinds of woodland and uh, 
but it, it's an ongoing management of the deer and the wildlife and the resource that's that's been established. It's not. Uh, I think for too long there's been woodlands been viewed as something you go and have a look at every twenty or thirty years, and I I don't agree with that outlook at all. I think it's a it's just the same as a field of uh, barley or a, a a hill covered with lambs. It's something that must be attended to on a regular basis. And Michael, just bringing the podcast to a bit of a close now, is there any one person, an individual, an organisation that you'd like to give a shout out to? Um, maybe an example of best practice uh, or some good results with regards to deer control? There, we're blessed actually in this country with a lot of good organisations. I, I don't think I would like to single out any one organisation where but there are many. There, we've got the BASC, British Association of Shooting and Conservation, Scottish Gamekeepers, uh, the British Deer Society, ADMG, and uh, Nature Scott. You know, they're they're all they've all got lots of information online now, and local representatives who will speak to people and help people and I've I found in my experience they're all glad to be contacted if you've got an awkward question or, or what have you and, and share their knowledge with you so it's just a case of pick up the phone or drop someone a, an email and uh, yeah I've I found people to be very very helpful. So Michael thanks so much for coming on Thrill the Hill it's been a really good discussion this afternoon Michael, how do people get in touch with yourself? Uh, simplest way would be by email uh, through my website, which is Highland Habitats. Uh, and uh, there's a, an email address there at Highland Habitats. And I'm happy to yeah, help folk out or uh, provide advice for them if they so, so wish. Brilliant. Well, Michael Skelly, on behalf of the Scottish Farm Advisory Service, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you, Alex. Pleasure. Thanks so much for joining us for this episode of Thrill the Hill. If you've enjoyed listening, please like, subscribe and follow this podcast. Leave us a review and let us know how we're doing. And if you'd like to get in touch, you can find all our details at the bottom of our show notes below. The Farm Advisory Service Podcast. Audio advice on livestock, crops and soils, environment, rural business and more. Brought to you in association with the Scottish Government.